if you would, would you join me in prayer before we begin? <clears throat> Mighty God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that sustains us. I stand here today unworthy of even speaking your word, and yet it's by your grace, O oh Lord, that we can reach and seek your face and enter the Holy of Holies in your very presence. Because the death of the Messiah, of Christ, torn the veil and allowed entrance into the very presence. Would you please fill us with your presence, fill us with your spirit. May your name be exalted. May the name of Christ be exalted. May we be focused on what you would have us be focused on today. Nourish our souls, our spirits, O oh Lord. May our worship come before your throne in a manner that pleases you. We thank you for Christ, and we thank you for his blood that covers us. In his name we pray, amen. Today we begin a new sermon series, King of Kings, an Advent series of the Kingship of Christ. Until now, we delved into the life of David. We'll learn of his passion. We'll learn of his love for God, but we also encountered his sins and witnessed his sufferings. We saw also that David's relationship with the Lord was marked by his longing for his presence. In fact, Psalm 84 provides us a good example of this, where David says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere. This was the man who longed after God, and yet he was very flawed, like many of you and I are. In fact, all of us. Paul, summarizing God's own opinion of David in Acts 13.22, wrote about David in this way. He said he raised up David to be their king. He also testified about him and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do my will. And yes, though these words are inspiring and making David, in fact, a very special king, a very special individual, it will be only through his descendant, through the Messiah, through the king of kings, that both Israel and the rest of the world will come to experience the perfect kingdom. Today we begin the exploration of the kingship of Christ. And before I explain the progression of our Advent series more in detail this, uh, this season, it may be helpful to begin showing you through a graph, a layout of the progressive revelation of the eschatological kingdom of God. Progressive revelation begins with the coming of the Lord and the incarnation of Christ in his first coming. Leads up to, through his life and it goes through his death and his ascension. Immediately after his ascension, we come to the season in which we are uh, right now. The season of the community of the king, the community 
of the church, the kingdom people. And the next event to take place in the progression of this revelatory kingdom is the second coming or the appearing of the Lord in the clouds. This appearing will bring into motion and will cost several other events to take place. One of those is the wrath of God being poured out on the wicked. Another one is actually the catching up or the rescuing of the people of God from that wrath to come. This will lead as the Lord descends into the clouds to the resurrection of the just and to the ushering of his earthly kingdom, the Davidic kingdom that had been prophesied by Ezekiel 37, by 2 Samuel chapter 7, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 2, and many other passages. This later leads to the final judgment in the eternal kingdom or the everlasting kingdom, which is also known the everlasting consummation of the plan of God. So this year's unique approach of our Advent series will, however, first bring focus to the second coming. We're going to go backwards. We'll bring focus to the second coming, this impending future appearing of the Lord, and later we will focus on the eternal state and the kingdom described in Revelation 21 and 22. Thereafter, this series will look back in time and will focus on the current state of the kingdom among his people, among the church, and how the kingdom is spread through the preaching of the gospel, which is in itself an inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the midst of the earth. And finally, this series will end concluding with the first coming, which focuses on the kingdom's inbreaking with the presence of the king almost 2,000 years ago, which began with the miracle of the incarnation and was followed by the events of his birth, life, and eventually death and resurrection. So today we begin the series addressing the future eschatological advent or the future coming of the Lord and what this brings with it. The second coming of Jesus the Messiah and the establishment of his messianic kingdom on earth. I want to begin by explaining that the word eschatological is just a a fancy theological word that comes from the Greek skatos, which means last or last things. In other words, what this kingdom uh, or what this coming is, is a, is a coming that will usher in a new age, a new season, a new administration of time that will be different from the one we're currently living in. So I've entitled this sermon today, The Return of the King. We anticipate the return of our king. And I've asked my daughter to excuse me beforehand because I'm going to use an illustration with her. You, you forgive me, right, Shish? <laughs> the best way for me to understand, at least in some of the implications regarding the coming of Christ, is to go back to the time in which Sharon was born. This was one of the most difficult times and days I've lived in my entire life, and yet it was the most joyful, or one of the most joyful times of my life. 
I can only describe it as a time of suffering, a long or intermixed with a great time of joy. Hers was a difficult and stressful birth. There were complications at her birth. They had to use a vacuum to help her out. It was too late for a C-section. They thought she had experienced a strangulation, and the entire NICU of 16 people showed up in our room. And I was freaking out. <laughs> and additionally, at the moment of her birth, she did not breathe for some time. You can imagine my anguish. The doctor did not even look at my wife or I. He immediately cut the umbilical cord. He handed her, handed her off to the NICU team. And rather than looking at us, he looked down at his feet and started counting. I didn't know what to make of this. Later, I understood that he was perhaps anticipating or looking to see um, if she would take too long to cry or if this would cause any damage to her brain. I went from complete desperation, thinking that I could lose her, to complete joy when I heard that, yeah, I cry. It was loud, but I loved it. That sound gave me a relief. And the doctor felt such relief that then, right after that, he looked at us and smiled. He was under a great deal of stress himself. Family, Jesus our King foretold that the events leading up to his return resemble birth pains. But we know that those birth pains will turn into comfort and relief for God's people when we finally see him. Matthew 24, verse 3 and 4, 3 to, 3 to 8, describes that the apostles came to Jesus and they asked him, tell us, please, what will be the signs of, his, of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, saying, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that, not, that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end will not be yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will rise against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. In all of these, but the beginning, there will be only the beginning of birth pains. Then, he said, will appear in heaven a sign of the Son of Man, and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn as they will see him. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and with great glory. Family, the return of the King should fill us with hope. It is the catalyst that brings this age to an end while it ushers in the stages of a glorious age to come. Take heart. It will get difficult. The Lord anticipated that. But once he returns, there will be great relief and joy 
as we see his coming. My first point is that the return of the king comes with great majesty, glory and great splendor. As we go to our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 18, this is what Paul tells us. For the Lord himself shall come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with a blast of God's trumpet. The Lord himself shall come down from heaven. Paul likely is using the term kurios in Greek, meaning Lord here, as a Greek substitute for the tetragrammaton, for the name of Yahweh, for those four consonants in Hebrew, yod, hey, vav, hey, that are, are pronounceable, that can, cannot be pronounced. And he's also substituting that which is found in Exodus 3.15 um, in place of the word Adonai, my Lord, which in Jewish practice acts as a surrogate itself. This is very significant. Paul is not simply saying Jesus, the historical man, is coming. He's not simply saying the Messiah, the Christ that the prophets anticipated to be another prophet, another mighty man, or, uh, or that was interpreted to be another mighty man, though the prophets were speaking of someone even mightier than that. It is important to remember that the term Christ, though Christians have naturally attributed to a divine nature, was not so originally understood by the first century Jews of his day. In fact, the understanding of a divine Messiah was rather the exception and could often be taken by the Jews of the first century as idolatry. So Paul ends up writing to the Thessalonian church as a first century Jew versed in the Torah and the Scriptures, and he tells them something very significant. He is saying to them, this Messiah, this Lord that is coming, that has been anticipated by the prophets, is Yahweh himself in the person of the Son. He writes, the Lord himself shall come. This means Yahweh will come. Paul makes use of this important surrogate word, curious again, in Philippians 2, chapter 11, when he says, and every tongue will confess that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, is Lord. That means that Jesus, the Messiah, is Yahweh, is one with Yahweh, is the eternal God in the person of the Son. This was a tremendous assertion. And he ends that verse by saying, and this will be done for the glory of God the Father. So Paul is essentially saying, Yahweh, the God of Israel, shall come. The God through whom all things were created, according to Colossians 1.16. He will come and appear visibly, visibly before all human beings once again. God will manifest himself to humanity in glory. And church, when the transcendent, awesome God of the universe, the God of the Bible, appears once again. A great change will take place, and a great joy and comfort will come to his church. See, when God appeared in the Old Testament in a visible form before human beings, this was the Son who appeared. 
Hebrews 1.3 tells us that this Son is the radiance of His glory and the imprint of His being. John 1.18 tells us no one has ever seen God, but the one and only God in the Father's embrace has made Him known, meaning the one and only God, the Son, is the one who has made God known. Jesus, the Lord, is therefore the eternal person, the eternal God in the person of the Son, who became men, became one of us, participated in, in our nature, and will once again return in glory. So yes, He, Jesus, is the one who will appear in the clouds. But when Jesus appears in glory, God, the eternal God, is appearing in glory. And this is no minor event. This is, in fact, a glorious event. Our text also reads that he comes with a commanding shout. The ESV renders it with a cry of command and with the voice of the archangel. What this tells us is that the appearance is not unnoticeable. It's quite the opposite. The appearance of the Lord is conspicuous, it's clearly visible, it's majestic, it's proclaimed in a glorious way. This text tells us that the coming of Yahweh in the person of the Son is announced in a commanding way by an archangel. He makes an impressive entrance as he is announced by this archangel. Paul also reveals that the Lord's appearing comes with the blasting of God's trumpet. The word used for trumpet here is salmphix in Greek, which has the antecedent of the Hebrew word shofar, which is the ram's horn. In the Old Testament scriptures, this was an instrument associated with war, but was also described in association with God's epiphanies, God's manifestations before human beings in a mighty way. An example of this is found in Exodus 19.16 at Mount Sinai. God's presence was manifested in such a powerful way that we read the following words. In the morning on the third day, there was thundering and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a blast of an exceedingly loud shofar or trumpet made all the people in the camp tremble. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the Lord to experience God's presence. In like manner, as Paul describes the Lord's return, with, will be accompanied with great glory, with a commanding announcement of an archangel, with a loud blasting that comes in the heavens. The Lord's coming is one described with great glory. But the Lord's return also will bring into effect the resurrection and the transformation of believers. This is my second point. In our text, Paul's continues, Paul continues, and he describes the effects of his appearing with these words, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. This verse reveals that every single believer in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, and the, Old, and the New Testament saints, and those who have died ever since Christ came the first time, in faith, they will experience the resurrection of their bodies at the Lord's appearing. They will rise at His coming. 
the dead will once again receive their bodies, and now those bodies will be glorified and immortalized. This event is the first outcome of the Lord's appearing in His second coming. The dead will rise first. A parallel passage is, is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 to 53, and it reads this way. Paul says, For the trumpet, or the shofar will be the antecedent, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we will be changed, we who are alive, for this corruptible must put on incorruptibility and this mortal must put on immortality. Contextually, this verse in 1 Corinthians 15 should be understood along with 1 Thessalonians 4.15, which says, For this we tell you that the word of, and by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall in no way precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, if we are alive, if we happen to be those who are blessed to be alive at the time of Christ, we will first witness the rising of the dead, the resurrection of the dead. And then, and only then, we will be cut to meet the Lord in the air and transfer to be with Him. Therefore, the results of His coming are this. The Lord appears in the clouds, and His appearing triggers the resurrection of the just, which itself is followed by the transformation or the change of believers who will be alive at that time. And this change will be the change from mortality into immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 says, For this corruptible must put on incorruptibility. Now, verse, verse 17 in our text, Paul continues, and he says this, Then we who are alive who are left behind will be cut up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This brings us to this point, the resurrection of the just and the transformation into immortality must be followed by a catching up, a gathering of sorts in which we will meet the Lord in the clouds. The text begins by saying, we who are alive, Paul is revealing that those in Christ who will have that privilege will be there, cut up. Regarding this being cut up, or regarding, regarding also the believers rescuing, Craig Blazing describes or writes this way, the Greek verb harpasementa, translated cut up, in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, is more vividly rendered snatched up correctly indicating a sudden, forceful removal of the whole lot of the resurrected living believers up to the presence of the Lord. This is the same verb that is used in Acts 8.39 to describe how the Spirit of the Lord snatched away Philip after the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm going to read from the text, and we will see a picture in a moment. Acts 8.26 tells us that now the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go to the south road, which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. And the story follows that Philip ap approached the chariot 
where the eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, and then Philip shared the gospel while opening the scriptures to him. And this led to the eunuch's belief in the Lord, and eventually he asked if he could be baptized since there was water nearby. And sure enough, he was baptized. And verse 39, it says that when they came up out of the water, meaning after his baptism, the Spirit of the Lord snatched away Philip and took him. And the eunuch saw Philip no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Verse 40 tells us that Philip was found in Azatos, appeared in Azatos. And if you look at the map, Azatos is close to 20 miles away from the road where he was. We have the dotted lines in red indicating Philip's route from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then he appears in Azatos, which is at the lower side of the green line, over 20 miles. He disappeared and he appeared somewhere else. This is a type of snatching away that will take place with all believers when Jesus returns. The difference is we will appear in the clouds with him. The Vulgate, which is the Old Testament translation of the, of the scriptures by Jerome in the late 14th century, translated the word rapimur from rapio. And this is where we get the English word rapture. Accordingly, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.17, this would be correctly rendered, then we who are alive, who are left, will be raptured together with them. <coughs> this indicates that an immediate purpose of the rapture or an immediate purpose of this catching up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is to meet the Lord in the air, is to be with him. The phrase to meet the Lord, eis epasein, Tokurio was used as a welcoming delegation coming out to the city to receive the company of an arriving dignitary. Nevertheless, while the assembling of saints around the coming of the Lord surely carries a connotation that is similar, there are certain differences that need to be understood. They do not go out to meet him at their own discretion. They are snatched up. They are seized. They're taken. Who has descended? While some advocate for the immediate return of, to the earth after the catching up, it is clear that the text says nothing about the accompanying him or accompanying him on the com completion of his descent to the earth. Rather, Paul concludes his description of the event with the assembly of believers in heaven, encouraged by the fact that he says, we will always be then with the Lord. In other words, while the notion of greeting and accompanying an arriving dignitary are not absent from the image being conveyed here, there's another image that is at work and is more important, and this is the image of a rescue. What I'm trying to say is that the coming of the Lord in the clouds, the snatching up of believers, is a rescue to the church. 
There are two types of rescues taking place here. The Lord rescues the dead saints from death itself. This farther is developed by 1 Corinthians 15, 55, when Paul, describing the transformation and the resurrection, echoes the words of Isaiah 25, 8 and Hosea 13, verse 14, when he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Death will never again affect those who have been sealed with Christ from that point forward. Those who experience death will rise to life again, and those who will have been alive by the time of his appearance will become immortal and never ex will experience death. The second type of rescuing is the rescuing that comes to those believers who are alive and is a rescuing from the wrath to come. I mentioned earlier that one of the events that it's triggered by the second coming is the wrath of God poured out on the wicked, on those who have rejected the gospel and have lived lawlessly. The Lord rescues believers from the wrath to come. In a wider context in the Thessalonian passage, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 to 10, Paul describes this condition of believers with the following words. He says to the Thessalonians, You turn from God, you turn to God from idols. In other words, you were transformed. You serve the living and true God now, and you wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, the one delivering us from the coming wrath. He is the one delivering us from the coming wrath. His wrath. His wrath is associated with a time of suffering coming over the whole earth. First Thessalonians 5, 2-4, Paul writes, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord is like a, comes like a thief in the night. When they are saying peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them like a woman having birth pains in the womb, and there is no way that they will escape. But you, brothers and sisters, says Paul, you're not in the dark so that that day will not overtake you like a thief. For God did not destine us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. The word for salvation there is soteria. It also means deliverance or preservation. So what the, Paul is saying is God has not destined us to experience the wrath that is to come over the whole earth. He has destined us to be rescued from it. <coughs> Craig Blazing explains Paul's next point is that although the day of the Lord will arrive suddenly, the effect of its arrival will be completely different for those who belong to Christ and those who do not belong to Christ. Paul makes this point by careful distinction between the second and the third person plural pronouns in that context. He says this, while people are saying peace and safety, meaning they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come suddenly and they will not escape. But you, brothers, you're not in darkness so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. What is this salvation that is given to believers at the beginning of the day of the Lord in contrast with the wrath that comes upon unbelievers? The answer is made clear by the phrase, 
so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. In other words, Christ will save those who belong to him with a rapture, with a seizing, with a taking for him. Those who don't belong to him will be overtaken, seized by destruction and wrath on that day. The two concepts being snatched up by the Lord on the one hand and being seized by the destruction of that day are present in that reality that he explains. The day of the Lord is a decisive divine act of deliverance and judgment on the wicked from its outset. This coming will bring corporate, also this coming will bring corporate salvation to the nation of Israel. Why? Because God made promises to Israel. Because he's faithful to the promises and to the people he made those promises to. This is ethnic national Israel. And they will be, a large group of them will experience salvation, transformation, and the touch of God through their knowledge and their embracing of Christ. This time of salvation comes along with suffering, however. This is a time of trial and testing that will come over the whole earth. The prophet Daniel wrote it this way, at this time shall arise Michael the archangel, the great prince who has charge over your people, he told Daniel. The people of Daniel are Israel. There shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people, Israel, shall be delivered or rescued. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So Daniel anticipates the resurrection of the just as one of the pointers for the time in which Israel will turn to their Messiah, to their king. The salvation of corporate national Israel is a mystery indeed. Romans 11, 25 and 27 through 27, Paul says, I do not want you brothers and sisters, he's writing to the Roman church, to be ignorant about this mystery lest you be wise in your own eyes that partial hardening has happened to Israel, to the Jews, until the fullness of the Gentiles have come into faith, has come in. And in this way, then all of Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer shall come out of Zion, and he will turn ungodliness from Jacob. This is why in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John anticipates an echo. He presents the coming of the Lord, and he uses as an echo some words that were originally proclaimed by the prophet Zechariah almost 600 years before Christ. In Revelation 1-7, it says, Look, the coming, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. In Zechariah 12, in fact, this is what Zechariah says. They will look upon him who was pierced, and they will ask him, What are those wounds in your hands? And as a result of the fact that he will declare to them who he was, they will weep and mourn and repent from their sin and turn to him. 
This is the same time that Revelation 20, verse 4 and 5 anticipates when he says, And I saw thrones, and people sat on them, and those whom authority to judge was given, and they came to life, were resurrected, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the reign that begins with the coming of Christ and is set into motion after the people of Israel turn to their Messiah, to their King, to the one Messiah in Christ that we as the church have already embraced. This is why Daniel 7:13 says, It was, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Men came in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and he was brought into his presence, and dominion and glory and sovereignty were given to him. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away in his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. Zechariah speaks about this detail. Zechariah 12, verse 1 says that the burden of the, the, burden of the Lord and concerning Israel says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of reeling, to all the surrounding peoples, and they will besiege Jerusalem. And the nations of the earth will be gathered together against her. We find in those texts leading up to Zechariah 14 that there is a war that takes place, that there is an anticipated war that's been prophesied that leads to the return of Christ. When you read Revelation 19, verse 11 and on, you see that Jesus returns with a host in heaven, and he comes with an army, and he comes to wage war on the wicked. Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians as well the fact that when he returns, 2 Thessalonians verse 8, he will kill the Antichrist, the men of lawlessness, who will be leading those nations coming against Israel at that point. Zechariah 14.3 says, Then the Lord, this is Jesus, will go forth and fight, fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives once again, which lies on the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a huge valley. And the Lord my God will come and all of his holy ones with him. And it says in verse 9, And the Lord will then be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be one, and his name will be one. This is the millennial kingdom of the Messiah. He needs to come, and he needs to reign over the nations of the earth to fulfill the promises given to David. God told David that one from his offspring will sit on his throne and that his reign will have no end. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but the kingdom on earth has not been fulfilled yet. The throne of David needs to be fulfilled, and he will go to the throne and take his Davidic kingship and reign over all the nations. Interesting fact, it says here, furthermore, if any of the nations during that kingdom time, verse 17, do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Rain will not fall on them. 
So this is not yet the perfected state of which Revelation 21 and 22 speak of. This is an intermediary kingdom in which Christ will bring all of his enemies to his feet and will bring a kingdom of peace in which he will reign with the church and with all believers. And I want to close with this. Why is all of this important, church? It is important because it's going to happen. It's going to happen, and we ought to be ready for it. We ought to be encouraging one another with these words, as Paul says in verse 18. We will see those who have fallen asleep and died. Listen, this past, this past Thanksgiving, I had my family coming over, and my brother-in-law got really emotional because they were doing a gender reveal. My, my sister is pregnant, five months pregnant, and about six months ago or uh, seven months before, uh, she was also pregnant and she lost her baby, and they knew that it was a boy. And when he did the gender reveal, we were all rejoicing, but he got isolated at one point, and I came over, and I talked to him, and I said, did you guys ever name your son? And he said, yes, we gave him a name, Jonathan. And I said, brother, you will see him again. He's alive. This is why Jesus said to the Sadducees, you err by denying the resurrection. Have you not heard? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. This is why it's important, because we can anticipate the fact that we will see those who have died in Christ. We can anticipate the rescuing of the Lord. We can anticipate our reunion with Him. We can encourage one another in this way and give glory to the King. I'll close with these words from Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We ought to be zealous for good works, to so live for him. We must anticipate his return. We must live in, in a fearsome way, in a way that would actually bring glory to him so that we may be ready when he returns and not feel ashamed in any way. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. But he desires for us to live in anticipation and in godliness as we praise him. Would you stand with me and pray? <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you're coming back. You're coming back again. And our prayer is that you would find us doing your will, striving and looking out to do what you desire for us, living in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And we know that we can only do this by the Spirit of God whom you have already provided to us. 
Would you please ignite our walk with the Spirit? Allow us, O Lord, to depend upon the Spirit so that we may live our lives consciously, being watchful, knowing that you will return one day and it will be glorious. It will be majestic. We will receive comfort and relief and blessing and you will rescue us from the wrath to come. We praise you, Lord of glory. We adore you, God our King. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for your love. We praise you in the name of Christ. May you come soon. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's sing together.